Welcome to the inside. As the weather improves everywhere and authorities announced that more venues and theme parks will soon be allowed to open for concerts, sporting events, and movies, the entertainment industry's prospects continue to brighten. But also this week, Hollywood saw a sobering example of the damage done by COVID-19. As one of the most iconic movie theaters in the world and a favorite of directors and A-list celebrities and film lovers, Hollywood Cinerama Dome has been home to premieres and opening nights for major films from Lawrence of Arabia to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So the announcement this week that the Dome's operators, Arclight Cinemas, wouldn't reopen released a reaction and mourning that felt as if a member of the Hollywood family had passed away. In the end, the Los Angeles Times reported that after a year of being closed, unpaid rent and mounting debts doomed the company. Director Ryan Johnson, who's hit movies The Last Jedi and Knives Out, were showcased at Arclight, captured the mood best when he tweeted, well, this sucks. On a happier note, Chloe Zhao, director of Nomadland, picked up the Best Director Oscar at the Academy Awards, making her just the second woman to win that honor. I am Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is my co-host for this series, Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Cineonic and joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Great news last week. We had Godzilla versus Kong storming the box office. It's now approaching $400 million worldwide, so good news there. But you said, this is a home run, but we're not always going to hit home runs. There'll be ups and downs, and here we are with the Pacific Theaters in Southern California, 300 screens, very visible in Hollywood, announcing they're not going to reopen. Uh, what do you make of this? You know, oh, um, it, it's a sad day, right? When a theater goes down, we, we, all, we always regret it. Now, I think that knowing from talking with many of the exhibitors, the cost of the leasing or the, the, the burden of, of the leases is heavy, right? Especially when there's a year without being able to open or at least 25 capacity, uh, the burden of a lease can be high. And I think that that's, I can imagine that that's been financially a challenging element for uh, Arclight Theatres and, and Pacific. But on the other hand, I think that many of the flagship locations, I do think will be picked up in my opinion, right? People gonna uh, be willing to have those locations in their portfolio and being able to show movies there. So, so the bad side is is that somebody of the family is leaving it for that sake. On the other hand, I think the the top locations gonna reopen. I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure about that. We could not have a better guest than the one we have today to talk about the future of movies in cinema. Jason Brennick has a remarkable perspective of the media and entertainment space. He spent a decade at the Walt Disney Company where he led worldwide digital cinema and multi-billion dollar marketing and distribution efforts at the film studio's in-home division to commercialize Disney, Marvel, Pixar, and Lucasfilm content. He then served as president of IMAX Home before leaving to found Metamedia, an entertainment technology company that creates next generation programs for content producers and cinemas. Metamedia's entertainment network is the world's first cloud-based distribution platform. I should add here, Wim, that along with Jeffrey Katzenberg, Jason was a founder of the Advanced Imaging Society. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here with you. Oh my gosh, it's uh, great to see you. After 12 years of working together, it's uh, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank to you. Talk about what you're up to. Before kicking it off, I, I hear you guys have a history, right? So, so the Advanced Imaging Society, you know, I, I understand that, Jason, you got something to do with it, how that started it. So, Wim Jason called a meeting 
a fateful meeting in 2009 that became the Advanced Imaging Society. It was a, a group of industry leaders committed to technology and the future of movies. No, I, I remember that well, Jim. And it was the first time that I remember seeing technology, business, and creative collide in such a, a, a big way for the industry. It was on the eve of uh, the new stereoscopic 3D wave, which we saw at Disney as a way to utilize technologies for the benefit of the creative community and for the consumers to create a much bigger, better, new type of viewing that hadn't been done before. Of course, 3D had been you know, done before. But at that time, the convergence of digital cinema technologies, digital filmmaking and CGI and, um, you know, some 3D technologies from RealD and others were, were really just coming together. And I, I remember, Jim, you being um, a real thought leader as it related to bringing creative and business and technology minds together. And I thought we discussed we need half the room needs to be creative people and half the people need to be the tech people, but it can't be all tech talking to each other and it can't be all creative people talking to each other. So let's always try to keep that balance so that there's progress. The, the other thing that I remember about that time was there is a baseline of resistance to all progress. <laughs> all technology That's right. being introduced meets a baseline of resistance and we're going to have to live at that baseline. You know, I don't I don't know if I can be credited with that statement that you just made about change and innovation, but I, it is something that I truly believe and have seen in practice in my time in the industry. And that is that everything is consistently evolving and changing in a dramatic way. And that since, you know, the early 2000s with with the Internet and with the finalization of the digital cinema standard, you know, you had an industry in cinema that had existed in one way for almost 100 years. And every single time a new technology came along, whether it was color, whether it was television, whether it was the VHS tape, whether it was Netflix, there was a big amount of resistance, distrust, what would happen to the industry if that came to market. And yet, everything continued once the technology was understood and harnessed continued to grow the business to what we what we see today in the in the landscape so it's it's as timely now as it was 10 years ago uh, as it was 20 years ago Jason you have had a remarkable career right serving for Disney and IMAX and and right now founded Media Media right so tell me a little bit about how would you see the industry today and, and because, you know, you started Metamedia in, in a world of change, right? Because the whole industry is in quite a change today, specifically the cinema space here. But how would you see the industry? What is it going through and, and where do you see it going? I have always seen change and innovation in the industry happening, but it has never accelerated as much as the last year. And I think it was a completely unexpected, I mean, unless you're Bill Gates or the World Health Organization, the last year was completely unexpected by studios, cinemas, and media companies. So it really forced uh, forward the change that had been happening on the fringe or in small increments over the past 20 years. You know, when I look back at my, I guess, my second job at Disney in 2003, I was in charge of something called product windowing, which looked at how content was released across all the ecosystem and tried to figure out how to time it in a way to maximize the value 
for every individual film or piece of product that came out. We're still talking about windowing today. Is there anything changed during COVID uh, in that sense? If you look back over the last year, it's clear that the studios have deferred a lot of their biggest product and are trying to time the release of that product to maximize the number of consumers who could take advantage of it and, and see it and pay for it. I think we will get back to a theatrical exhibition window. So whether it ends up being something close to 17 days like some of the studios have done or 45 days, I do think the idea of releasing at the same time as a direct-to-consumer platform, which is really a marketing a marketing stunt to a certain extent to get subscribers on board to the service. I think over time that marketing value will start to diminish. And if the Hollywood studios still want to make feature films that cost more than $200 million, you know, things coming out of Marvel or Lucasfilm or the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, they're going to need a theatrical release. So I do see films being the majority of what is shown in theaters going forward. But I do think there is a huge amount of room for other content and other innovation within theaters. So into that is we need to come to a, an agreement on what a window is. I think so. Right. Or, or at least or at least some understanding of what rules I mean, the window might even be dynamic, but let people understand what causes the windows to change. What what would be the calculus? You know, is it a box office performance? Is it? You know, what is the, the threshold? So, you know, th these things could be flexible, but no one right now has any understanding of what are the rules of play. So it's hard to kind of create business models around those types of things. Jason, you were involved in bringing Garth Brooks live concerts to driving theaters uh, this last year. Tell us about Metamedia and your experience with this recent initiative. Metamedia was formed when I left IMAX Corporation because I saw the, the convergence of technology and creative that finally was able to finish the job that we started 15 years ago with the conversion of digital cinema. And that job was to enable theaters around the world to have the same programming flexibility as any in-home platform provides to consumers. So essentially to broaden content distribution and to democratize the amount of content that could be de delivered to cinemas around the world. And with, you know, we've done Garth Brooks and Metallica, we've done UFC sporting events. We feel that consumers want to see certain types of programming outside of films on the biggest screen possible. That being social around uh, your favorite musical artists, your favorite sports team are things that completely play to the advantage of exhibitors. So during the pandemic, you know, as we were rolling out our platform to, to indoor theaters, we also rolled it out to drive-ins, which were open throughout the pandemic to bring people together and enjoy out-of-home social experiences. So the, But I think those experiences also translate very well into the indoor space. And just this past weekend, um, with in a partnership with Cinemark, we uh, delivered the, the Triller uh, fight night boxing event. And the big technological evolution that makes it possible is the use of the cloud and the use of Microsoft Azure for us to be able to deliver in the same way Netflix or Apple TV deliver a variety of product to your home. 
we also are able to open up the floodgates for the types of programming that theaters can deliver to its consumers on a very targeted and fan-centric way. Well, I, I did not know this, but I had read that a significant number of movie cinemas still get their content on a hard drive. Yeah, it's absolutely true. 95% of movies around the world are delivered on hard drives and suitcases via post. And that was the, the core idea that brought MetaMedia out. And ultimately, that was the job that was never finished 15 years ago when we rolled out and converted digital cinema around the world. You think about it, but the internet was a dirty word at that point in time because it had unleashed a huge amount of piracy. And there was no such thing as the cloud at that point in time. And so you had to do things in a very different way which is why uh, hard drives, and in some places, satellite has continued to exist. Our guest today is Jason Brennick. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced service and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 90,000 projectors installed globally, over half of the world's cinemas are illuminated by Cineonic. Visit Cineonic.com and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our guest today is Jason Brennick, who is the CEO of MetaMedia. Over the next few months, what has to go right? What does everybody need to do over the next three or four or five months to move us uh, through to a successful transition back to a healthy economy in our industry? Because of all the uncertainty that this whole year has created, I think there's still not a lot of alignment on the interdependency between businesses and where businesses need to go together. There's still frayed relationships between exhibitors and studios. It's, it's clear the studios have been looking out for their own product. And I think there are a lot of bridges that need to be built to figure out where is the industry going together now that everybody's had their fun experimenting with different models and different you know things. And that will probably continue for a period of time. But I think getting to some industry consensus around what is best for a healthy, thriving industry. If all of the theaters went out of business tomorrow, and it's a miracle that on the other side of this year, more businesses haven't gone under, more theaters haven't gone under, it would be a terrible thing for the studio and the media business broadly. So I think some amount of acknowledgement about where the industry is headed together and the interdependency of companies on each other. And that at the end of the day, a successful, healthy ecosystem is, is necessary to move us to the next stage. The announcement this week that Arclight was closing, I think it brought home the impact of this last year in a way that uh, was really pretty profound because most of the people in the industry, including me, saw our movies for the most part at Arclight Cinemas. So to hear that our movie chain would not be reopening its doors made it very, very real. Gretchen McCourt was here two weeks ago and she since left Arclight. She was there during formative years. We asked her, do you see a place where Netflix or Amazon purchase movie theaters? And she said, 100%. What do you think? It's a very interesting idea. And I also you know, would never have guessed that Amazon would have purchased Whole Foods and moved into retail after dominating online retail for so long. 
you know, Netflix has bought uh, or bought years ago the Egyptian theater in Hollywood, another amazing historic landmark for showcasing its content. And again, to satisfy the consumer demand for seeing the content they produce on the big screen and to satisfy the filmmakers and creatives who create that product, like, you know, Martin Scorsese with The Irishman, they, people want to see that in a theatrical setting. So I never would have thought that those types of investments would be made by Amazon and Netflix in the past. I do think that there are a lot of reasons for someone like Amazon to continue expanding its physical retail footprint, whether it's for continuing to allow packages to be picked up. Movie theaters have amazing density in urban areas. And so the idea of Amazon lockers or other things that will be you know, kind of improved by uh, Amazon or Netflix, who has faced resistance in the past based on its windowing policies, could want a premium space for its content to be able to be showcased to consumers before it goes into awards consideration or to satisfy consumer demand. So I, I would put it at a high maybe. I don't think there's any question that the Arclight, which is, again, like you, Jim, you know, my favorite place to see movies, I don't think there's any question that those will reemerge owned by someone. Let's talk about streaming for a minute. Disney reports at the end of first quarter up over 100 million subscribers. Netflix up over 200 million. The Deloitte report this week says that the average household has four subscriptions right now. In October, the average uh, household had five subscriptions. Now it's four. That's still quite a few. But what do you make of that? Yeah, I think... You know, my view would be that probably freeze we're gonna where it's gonna stick, you know. But I think people have more than one. Let me put it this way, right? And and I think two to three is not unreasonable, I do believe. But I don't see the streaming, which by the way goes to millions of people, necessarily competing with the cinema space, which is a niche market kind of thing. There's only let's say less than two hundred thousand screens worldwide if you take it like this. And and that is that's the good news. A couple of different methods, I think, that are at work here. There is the, let's make the content, let's get Scorsese to make the movie, and we're going to launch it on our streaming service, and we're going to move through the digital marketplace. There's another school of thought that I think Warner Brothers with Harry Potter or Disney or Comcast might use, which is, we're going to open this as a theatrical experience. This is going to be merchandise. It's going to be eventually a theme park ride. But we're going to rely on this IP to live for a long, long time. What does a theatrical open do for a large corporation that's trying to look down the road at, at how to develop IP? Well, I, I think it absolutely is the wave maker. It is absolutely the catalyst that creates all of these ancillary businesses that make the studios and media companies so much more money than the feature film itself. And if you look at what Marvel and the Marvel character universe have been able to create, the value that they've been able to create for Disney and also for the fans of Marvel to allow them to engage with those characters on multiple platforms with multiple products, it is so much more powerful than purely a piece of content, film or television platform that is specifically just in and of itself a, a, you know, just a piece of work. So Beauty and the Beast begins as a motion picture because that powers everything down the road in a way that a television show couldn't. 
That's right. That's right. And, you know, if you if you look at franchises that don't start as a movie, it's hard to identify too many of those. It's hard to identify in the mass volume of direct-to-home product, whether you're talking about TV series, miniseries, or direct-to-home movies, it's hard to find franchises that emanate from that space. I could say Miley Cyrus and Hannah Montana, High School Musical, those were global phenomenon that emanated from a, a, a television program, but it's still very difficult to find the type of power. We're talking multi-billions of dollars in revenue and consumer affinity based on something that has just been launched first into the home. As people get back to being able to be out, the movie theaters are going to come back and the movies are going to come out. And the acceleration of that is what is key to the success of a healthy ecosystem. And so with that final thought, are you both uh, optimistic about the future of cinema? I am incredibly long uh, and optimistic on the theatrical business. And that's not only because, you know, Metamedia is trying to evolve and change and adapt to consumer desires and tastes, but I also, as a, as a consumer myself, miss going out of the house, miss the theatrical experience, and feel that, again, for most people in the world, that is the best out-of-home entertainment experience you can get at an affordable price. You know, most people will never see a concert that comes to their city from their favorite artist. Most people won't get to see their favorite professional sports team. But by and large, most people in the world can see a, a movie out of the house and, and continue to want to do so. So I'm very, very bullish on the theatrical space on the other side of this. Wim, you have a global view because your company is involved in technology. What keeps you optimistic about the future of cinema? I think the, the, the fundamental fact that the consumer wants still to go out, like I said before, the thing what keeps me awake is, are we attracting enough of the youngsters to go to the movies, right? That's for me the thing, because right now, they're behind their PlayStations and the gaming and all that stuff, which, by the way, is great. And it means that we need to evolve more to what I would call entertainment hubs and bring other content to them, right? Because, but experiencing it on the big screen, you never can get at home. That, for me, is solid as something. But... But there has to be different content coming, absolutely movies, but other things which attracts the youngsters to go there. And that I think we need to be thoughtful and continue to, to, to work on uh, because it will not come from itself. But, but I, I think this is, this is an industry which, which uh, definitely um, um, will continue flourishing moving forward. So, We want to give a shout out to uh, the Cal State CSU Entertainment Alliance. It's a group of educators, students, and alums who are joining this series as listeners. And we want to thank Haley Seppa for all of her work in wrangling the students and the, uh, the educators to listen in. It really tees up a question, uh, which is right now there is this enormous desire within our industry uh, for greater inclusivity, greater gender balancing, and many, many people probably want to help and others coming up probably want to get mentored. Do you have any advice or thoughts about how you'd advise someone uh, listening to approach getting help in their career? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that it's an incredibly important topic, mentorship. And what I've realized in the past year, especially, is that is one area that is missing from the careers of many people of color 
And that is one piece that is missing from many women in the industry. And it comes very naturally to a white male who's navigating their career to seek mentors and formalize mentoring relationships. And that is just something that I have been become very acutely aware of over the past year. And it's something that I want to really make sure in any organization I'm a part of or that I have a chance to influence that mentoring happens across the board. The new generations have different priorities, right? And one of the things they do is advancing their career very fast is maybe not the first priority, but having a great job, a meaningful job, mentoring is, is an element to that. So so right now we, we are we are in a process of, of formalizing a mentor program as an example, right? Where we in Sionic as we speak, where we are asking people to sign up to be mentors and, and coupling that, right? What you said there, Jason, is that the coupling is not always easy. There's there's often a barrier, right? I don't dare to ask it because he's, you know, he's two levels up or he's this or that or whatever, right? So I I, I will stay shy in my in my corner. And and that's what you want to break through, that people can can speak up. And so we're facilitating that uh, a little bit more proactively. Reach out to people who you like, who you feel emulate the leadership style or professional characteristics that you think you one day would like to embody. Because I would almost guarantee you that if you were to formalize that mentoring relationship, that the person on the other side would be open to it. And I have too many mentors in my career to name or count, but it always involved at some point in time, me turning what was more of a casual passing friendship to a coffee with that person to a point where I said, hey, do you realize that you're a mentor to me? And is it possible for me to call on you on occasion when I'm dealing with something? I'm also speaking to executives as well who see up and coming stars in your organization or highly motivated people. You can see them in a moment and reach out to them because those things go a long way in helping people navigate their careers and get more confidence as they grow in organizations. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Wim. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Wim. Thank you, guys. Our quote of the day comes from director Karen Kusama. In a story about the Arclight closing this week, she said, no one place has given me so much joy. It's been my holy temple. To lose it is unacceptable. And when we face the possibility of this magical theater's extinction, we have to ask a larger question about movies and art and humanity in general. Let's figure out how to keep this place alive because there is nothing else like it and because watching movies on the big screen is human experience worth preserving. Join us next time when our guest insider will be WandaVision director, Matt Shackman. Until then, thanks for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.